0: All right, great. You can open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. At Rock Valley Bible Church, we've been uh, in Hebrews 11 for about how long? What do you got? A year and a half in Hebrews. That's right. How long in Hebrews 11? Three months. In fact, this is my twelfth message on the Hebrews chapter 11. And uh, we aren't done yet. But over and over and over again, the mess has been about the same, right? People have always come to God on the basis of faith. So the, these Jewish people who are being pulled away, saying you need to go to the temple or the, the sacrifice or the rituals, and uh, this writer is saying, no, 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 it's by faith in Jesus. He's just going back to the Old Testament saints saying they always believed. He was always coming to God by faith and not by works of righteousness. And he's just looking at all these Old Testament saints and he's saying, press on in your faith. Just like they pressed on through difficulties, through hardships, through troubles, you press on as well. We've seen example after example after example of those in the Old Testament who pressed on in their faith, even through immense difficulties. And we're going to see that even coming up uh, the next couple of weeks, even as the, the difficulties come. And... And in my messages, I've simply called you to believe like they have believed. And I think that's the, that's the premise of Hebrews chapter 11. It says, these people are the saints of God in the Old Testament. They were justified before God by their faith. And so we also need to imitate them and how they were justified by their faith. We need to follow after them. I've called you to imitate the faith of, Gable, of Abel, who worshipped God and it cost him his life. I called you to imitate the faith of Enoch, who walked with God, even when there were few walking with God around in that time. I called you to imitate the faith of Noah, who witnessed for God by by building an ark and preaching for 120 years with very few converts. I called you to imitate the faith of Abraham, who left his home to dwell in a land of promise, but he even never fully received all those promises. I called you to imitate the faith of Sarah, who believed the impossible and considered that God was faithful and able to do what He's promised. Uh, I've called you to believe in the, like, like Moses believed and like his parents believed, who chose obedience to the Lord even at great cost to themselves. I've called you to imitate the faith of Israel who conquered Jericho by doing things God's way. And seeing God's blessing come upon that, I've called you to imitate the faith of Rahab, the sinful harlot who trusted in God to save her and her family from destruction. And we can go on and on and on and on and on taking examples from the Old Covenant, the Old Testament of people who walked by faith. And the big question here this morning is, when do we stop? We've been three months of this. We could go four months or five months or ten months or several years. Should we continue on? How long should we continue? I mean, all along, I have been aiming towards Hebrews chapter 12, where ultimately, yes, we need to imitate their faith, but where is our faith? Our faith is in Jesus, and so we need to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, is set down at the right hand of God. But how far should we continue? I mean, so far, the writer of the Hebrews has covered the Pentateuch roughly, and it's begun to get into Joshua. And he's been all chronological so far. Abel in Genesis 4, Enoch in Genesis 5, Noah, Genesis 6 through 8, Abraham begins in Genesis 12, Isaac begins in Genesis, oh, I think it's 2021, and then Jacob, who's Genesis like 27, 26. And then Joseph, who's Genesis 37, he, he just walks right through all these people. And that's, that's all just in Genesis. And then he began at Exodus, Exodus chapter 2 with the birth of Moses. And then chapter 3 and up through about like 16, 17 when he comes and takes, when they leave Egypt. And, and then skips all of Numbers and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And then jumped, like we saw last week, into Joshua, exactly parallels. He talked about the, uh, the taking on of Jericho. So far, he's got about 25% of the way through the Old Testament. That's 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 skipping a lot. I mean, even there in Genesis, he skipped Lot, who by faith left Sodom and Gomorrah without looking back. He skipped Aaron, who by faith spoke for Moses before Pharaoh. He skipped Phineas. Great story of Phineas. Numbers 25. Who by faith made a stand for righteousness and turned away the wrath of God from Israel and obtained an eternal priesthood. Totally skipped that guy. He skipped Caleb, one of the twelve spies, who by faith, along with Joshua, said, let's take the land. How long should we continue to place before you hearers of faith who preserved in the faith? And that's the very question It's introduced in our text this morning. Hebrews 11.32. Look what the... The author here says, he says, and what more shall I say? And this is a question I've dealt with throughout this entire chapter. How, how much should I say about Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham? How much time should we spend on each of those guys? How much time should I say spend on Jacob and Joseph and Sarah and Moses? And I've chosen to really slow down and might just think about their faith and kind of just, just delve in here and think about the matter of faith because it's good for us as a church. Taking one or two of these people each week, taking... Three verses, two verses, one verse, and just kind of go and go like that. My title of my message this morning is, What More Shall I Say? From verse 32, which by the way, this is parenthetical, gives evidence that this this letter that we have in Hebrews is really a sermon more than it is a letter, because he doesn't say, What More Shall I Write? He says, What More Shall I Say? I do believe that these are sermon notes to one of the best sermons ever preached. Because he's saying here, what, what more shall I say? And then he says, for time will fail me if I tell all these people. It's not space on the page, it's time. And preachers, by the way, always feel like they don't have enough time. But I'm thankful for a body that, that endures with us. We have one shot on Sunday morning and you endure patiently. But I feel like even in all this, we don't have time. We don't have time this morning. We're going to zip through what we're going to do. Let me just read verse 32 and the following so you get a, a sense of what's going on here. He says, What more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with a sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy." wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. And we see a change here in the, the writer, the speaker, whoever. We don't know who that is. Only God knows who that is. But rather than describing each of these people and how it is they live by faith, He begins to mention them only by name. And he's still roughly chronological, though at this point, he's not chronological at all. We see here Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, all judges, but they didn't come historically in those orders. There was a different order there. And then we see David, who was a king, and he came after Samuel. And then we see the prophets then who came after David... None of these names exactly are in order, but he's just he's just coming up with names of people and assuming that when he he says a name that we'd understand all these people and how they came to God by faith. And then he lists the mighty deeds here in verse thirty-three and following. Missing the things that they did and some things that other saints of the old testament did. They they conquered kingdoms, they they obtained promises, they shut mouths of lions, they escaped the sword. They quenched fire. And I had every, every desire this morning to, to speak about the people and then the deeds that they did. The people, verse 32, and then 33 and following with the, the deeds they did. But I found the people in verse 32 too rich. So we're just going to cover one verse this morning. Verse 32, what more shall we say? And I just want to take these seven names of the people, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and then we're going to try to lump all the prophets together if that's possible, right? That's what our aim is this morning. We're going to see these seven people, six people, and a group of people, how they lived by faith. Let's talk about Gideon. Do you know about Gideon? He, his story is told in Judges chapter 6 through 8. He arose during a time of Israel when they were oppressed by Midian. And periodically, the, the Midianites would come upon Israel like swarms, and they would devastate the land. And they would devastate Israel and take their sheep and their ox and their donkey. Leave them with nothing. A little bit like the tsunami that came in Japan. Kind of wipe them out, take them out with nothing. And they would take all these things back to their country and enjoy them. And then let Israel go through the process of rebuilding, if you will. To rebuild their flocks, rebuild their lands, rebuild their crops, rebuild their storehouses. And then as soon as they got rebuilt again, Midian would come in and destroy them again and take them away. These were true enemies of Israel. And finally, the people of Israel cried to the Lord, and God sent Gideon, a man to deliver them from the Midianites. And, and the way that, that Gideon delivered Israel was a way that demanded great faith. First of all, what took place is this. is Gideon went by night and took down the altar of Baal. Just to like agitate and stir the Midianites who when they, they saw that, all the midianites and all the Amalekites and the sons of the east, a big swarm of people gathered themselves to fight against Gideon. And so Gideon mustered his troops. He had more than 30,000 soldiers. In fact, he had 32,000 soldiers ready to fight against the Amalekites, the Midianites, and the sons of the east. All, all these people that they had gathered to fight against them. But the Lord said this, with 32,000, He said, The people who are with you are too many for me. To give Midian into your hands. For Israel will become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. Look, we have 32,000 troops. Of course, look how strong we are. We can finally defeat these Midianites. So, Gideon had to reduce the size of his army. So, God told him firsthand to say, Whoever's afraid and trembling, go. And you how many left? More than two thirds. 22,000 of the troops left. They said, "Oh, I get out. I don't have to fight these guys. I'm gone." So it's down to ten thousand. That's a better army to fight the Midianites with, right? But God said, "No, the people are still too many." So He took them down to the water to drink. And when they're down drinking, Midian was, Gideon was supposed to watch how they drank. Now, think about you. You're thirsty. You're down by a by a bed of water. How would you drink? Well, a couple ways Either you can get down and laugh like a dog you kids know what a dog looks like you guys do right Harley what, how does he drink <laughs> exactly and you might do that or, or you might get down on your knees and just start you know like sucking it all in you might do that if you did that you are going home because only those who, who knelt down like this and cupped the water into their, into their mouth it's only those that he kept you know how many of those there were Yes, how many, Nathan? 300. So he goes from 32,000 down to 300. God says, that's more what I want. And God says, Judges 7, 7, I will deliver you with the 300 men and give the Midianites into your hands. And Gideon, by faith, he believed the Lord. Now, I'm not sure about you. I wouldn't be so thrilled at these prospects. I'd rather take the 32,000. Thank you very much. I would rather not take the 300. Wouldn't you? Yeah. Which of you would rather take the 300? That's right, because you've got faith, Caleb. That's right. <laughs> Only by the, the hand of God. But those are the people of faith. People of faith realize that the most important factor in any difficulty is the face of God. So in other words, if God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.31 It's a great reality of life. Right? If God is for us, Nobody can be against us. The body they may kill, Martin Luther said, but God's truth abides still. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego going into the fiery furnace. So you may kill us and it may not be quenched, but we're going to trust God. But if God is for you, nobody can be against you. Jesus said, don't fear Him who can kill the body, but fear Him who can kill both the body and the soul and put Him into hell. God is the one who can deliver and He can deliver even with 300 and even as we think about us as Christians, right? If God is for us, if, if God has favored us in Christ, there's nobody who can be against us. I mean, there might be people that come against you that might say some evil things against you that might do some things, but if God has forgiven us in Christ, like eternity is settled, we don't have to worry. We stand or fall before the Lord and Him only. And if God has received us, no tongue can bid us then depart him says. And that was the faith of Gideon. He believed God, okay, there's 300. So they went down um, they went down, and took the men against the camp of the Midians by night. And so um, they split up into three groups, 100 here and hundred here and 100 here. before they left, though, Gideon started handing out trumpets and put empty pitchers in their hands, all of them, just according to the Word of the Lord. So we had a hundred here with trumpets and pitchers, and a hundred there with trumpets and pitchers, a hundred here. And he split them in the middle watch of the night. Then all the men blew their trumpets. They smashed their pitchers that were in their hands. Right? They just made this big ruckus. And you know what happened? The people were scared. and they, they were stirred up in the middle of the night, and they were confused. They started fighting each other and killing each other, and they fled. God defeated the whole army with 300 people. They were far outnumbered. But they just smashed these pitchers and blew the trumpets. And Gideon delivered Israel from the hands of the Midianites by faith. And I, I really believe that the call of Gideon upon our life as we think about, okay, what, what aspect of Gideon's faith are we to imitate as so we come before the Lord? He said, we need to trust God despite how desperate circumstances look. Uh, I sent out in the Weekly Word this week a syllogism. Paul Tripp said it. Something to the effect of this. God's ways are best. God's ways are best. If God says that we need to follow that, that is the best way. Let's obey Him like like, uh, Gideon did. Second one is God's ways don't always look like they're the best to us. Remember? Proverbs 14, verse 12. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its way is the end of death. The way that might seem right, but God's ways are best, but we might want another way. We need to see God's ways, trust His ways, and then finally, you will reap what you sow. Galatians 6, verse 7. If you choose God's way, you'll reap blessing. And if you choose your own way, which seems right to you, but isn't, you'll reap disaster. And so, so likewise. And that's where we need to live. We just need to trust that God's ways are right, like Gideon did. And he saw 300 people take on the large army and win. And we can see that through Christ we can take on the world and win as well. Alright, well the next person in the list, verse 32 there, it says Gideon. I've just told you about Gideon. And by the way, time isn't failing us this morning because we can spend all 45 minutes I have here or or an hour, an hour and 15 minutes, whatever it turns out to be, right here in verse 32. And we got some time. But by this time, the author of Hebrews, I mean, he, he, was, he was already like 40 minutes into his sermon. 35 minutes into his sermon, but we can just go. Okay, here's Barak. Let's tell about Barak. You know about Barak? Yeah, you know something about Barak? Okay, well, let me tell you about him. Judges 4 and 5 thats where his story is told. So, Gideon was Judges 6 through 8. Now we go back to Judges 4 and 5. He was a judge who arose to deliver Israel from their distress. His story isn't as interesting as Gideon's was, so I'm going to be a lot shorter on his story, but it's a story of faith. During the days of Barak, Israel was oppressed by the Canaanites. And uh, through the prophecy of Deborah, Barak was to take an army of 10,000 people up to Mount Tabor and fight against Sisera and his chariots and his army. And so, he took them all, these troops, 10,000 troops, to meet them. And the entire army of Sisera fell by the sword. It's a really simple story, right? Take this army and go and fight. But Psalm 20, verse 7 really summarizes the life of Barak. Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And that's what really what Barak did, because Sisera had all the horses and all the chariots. They just had a lot of people and fought and won because the Lord was on their side. Simple and straightforward. I, I think about this is that he... He wasn't called to take on an army at incredible odds. He wasn't called like Joshua to march around Jericho and just see its walls fall out. He wasn't called like Gideon to blow these trumpets and bank. He was called just to fight, just to flat out war, just head on, front on front. He was called to be a courageous military leader, engage his army in and battle. And I think that we can learn from Barak is simply that he's like most of us. Certainly he was a leader, but he wasn't like a a leader is called to do such extraordinary things. He was just called to do the things an ordinary military leader might do. And I just say, God has called most of us not to take some heroic action of faith, but merely to believe and trust in Christ, walk with Him daily, share Him with our family, speak with Him with those who don't know Christ, calling them to believe, bearing fruit each day. That's what God calls us to do, and that's what Barak did by faith. God called him to lead an army, whatever He calls you to do, but probably just be a a simple judge is all Barak was. Alright, there's Gideon Barak, Samson. Alright, Samson is one of the most interesting guys in all of the Old Testament. His story is told in Judges 13-16 to and he had his faults for sure. He was a womanizing scoundrel who thought nothing about taking revenge upon his enemies. He would kill them at a whim. He would destroy their crops Kind of just, if he was mad, right, he had an anger problem as well. If he was mad at the Philistines, he would just get back at him somehow. But the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, giving him incredible strength for the length of his hair. You kids remember that story? And with the Spirit of the Lord upon him, he accomplished great things by his faith. He terrorized the Philistines during his days because of the strength that God gave him. At one point, a thousand Philistines had attacked him. And you remember what he picked up and defeated them all? Yeah, what do you got, Andrew? A, do- a jawbone of a donkey. He took, killed a thousand. Now, I'm not sure about you, but a thousand to one's not good odds. Last night, I was with my daughter Stephanie, who is uh, seven, right? And, and uh, she said, Dad, can we wrestle? So I wrestled with her a little bit on the floor. And she said, can we wrestle like we used to? And what she means by that is, is everyone against Dad. So five against Dad. And uh, I used to be able to take them all. And I could put them all down and kind of hold them. Not anymore. Right? So, we haven't wrestled for quite some time. But five against one with several little guys, I can't take them. And, da- and uh, Samson took a thousand to one with the jawbone of a donkey. Speaks of his strength. But you then know the story about how he's deceived by his wife and figured out the strength of him and they cut his hair and the, the Philistines then captured him and they gouged out his eyes so as to put him in a point of weakness. At one point, he was brought to be mocked before thousands of Philistines had gathered together. Three thousand of them in this house or this building or something like that. And they wanted to bring him out. Hey, come and let us laugh at Samson, this one who terrorized us because he is so weak now. And so Samson, blind as a bat, asked the boy who was there, to, where are the pillars? Where are the main pillars of this, of this uh, house here? And so he found them. He's between the two pillars. And then Samson, by faith, called upon the Lord. He says, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me just this time, O God, that I may be avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. And then, grasping the two pillars, one on his right, one on his left, he took down the whole house of the Philistines. You're probably just breaking them. The pillars come down, he dies, and he killed more in his death than he killed in his life. It's the story of Samson. And he was a man who had faults, but he lived by faith in God. From him, I think we learned the lesson of God's power. We've got to imitate that. I mean, we'll never be as strong as Samson. We're not called to imitate the strength of Samson. Boys, I'm not calling you to grow your hair out. I'm not calling you to do that. But Samson had faith. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he believed that he could do what God had called him to do. And I just tell you that when the Spirit of God comes upon you to do a specific task, you will have no lack. God will not call you to do anything for which He hasn't supplied you the strength to do it. Philippians 4:9. My God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's not once. That's needs. He will provide for us, and we just need to be like Samson, and trust in His power to be in us to conquer the trials and difficulties that come upon our lives. All right, we've seen Gideon, Barak, Samson. Now we go Jephthah. He's the next one here in verse thirty-two. Do you know Jephthah? Okay, not not so much, huh? Nathan, you had your hand right on up for Barak. Do you know Jephthah? All right, Jephthah, Judges 11. Um, He's another judge. He's another one like Barak. Not too spectacular. No jawbones or long hair for him. No wild plots of revenge. No banging pots and blowing trumpets. But Jephthah just merely held his ground. He didn't even advance against. He, He more just held his ground. The enemies of his day were the sons of Ammon. They were coming upon Israel. And the elders of Israel chased Jephthah down and said, will you lead the battle against the Ammonites? Apparently, Jephthah had some leadership gifts. People came and sought him for these gifts and then he said, okay, I will do that. Jephthah then, when he kind of took some power in Israel, sent a message to the, son, to the king of the sons of Ammon saying, what is it between you and me? Why have you come to fight against our land? And the king of Ammon said, because Israel took away my land when they came up from Egypt, from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok and the Jordan. Therefore, return them peaceably now. In other words, the king said, this was our land, but Israel came and took it over. Like Joshua and the conquest, they took it over. And it belongs to us, so give it back to us. And Jephthah then stood firm in his faith, believing that the promised land is what God had given them. And if God had given them the land, Israel wasn't about to surrender nor would God allow them to be defeated. Here's, here's Jephthah's statement of faith. Whatever the Lord our God has driven out before us, we will possess. See, whatever God has driven out, we'll take that, because God has given it to us. I therefore have not sinned against you, but you are doing me wrong and making war against me. May the Lord the Judge judge today between the sons of Israel and the sons of Ammon. You hear what he's saying? He said, God drove out the people from the land. So we are in this land, and this is our land. You're attacking, you're the one who's doing the wrong. We will stand firm on keeping the things that God has given to us. He said, let's fight it out. God's on our side, He'll vindicate our words. Now, like Samson, Jephthah had flaws. Before the war, he made a foolish vow. He said this, if you indeed will give... He's praying to God. If you indeed will give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors to my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's. I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So he makes this deal with God, wins the victory, and he comes home and what came out the door first? His daughter came out the door. I think he sacrificed his daughter. Keeping his vow... Rather than repenting from that. But, here it is. The weakness for sure. Which is, everyone in this hall of faith here has has weaknesses. But, think about this. This deal that that Jephthah was making with God was a deal of faith. It was a vow of faith. He said, God, this is your land. And if you do this, I'll do this for you as well. So, just pleading the Lord that God would give them the strength to win It just turned sour when the daughter came out. showed how foolish that was. But it was an affirmation of faith. That is the faith of Jephthah. And I think the application of Jephthah is merely we ought to have faith that stands our ground, takes the things that God has given to us, believes them, embraces them, hold on to them. Alright. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah. Now David. Do you know about David? Who knows about David? Oh, come on. Adults. Do you guys know about David? Okay. Who doesn't? Everyone knows about David. Who knows about David? Let's try this again. Who knows about David? Betty, you got your hand. Okay, Michelle. Okay, Marley. Yeah, okay. Everyone knows about David. All right. First and second Samuel. I mean, huge books. First Samuel thirty chapters. Second Samuel some thirty chapters. Sixty chapters of historical reference to the life of David. He wasn't a judge, he was a king. Before he was a king, he was a shepherd. He was also a musician. He could play with harp. And he also wrote many, many psalms. Do you know how many psalms he wrote? This will help you. 75 for sure. Half of all the 150 psalms, 75 for sure, and probably some others that are just anonymous aren't to him. So at least half of the psalms he wrote, he was called the sweet psalmist of Israel in 2 Samuel 23 verse 1. And what should we say about David? Did he have faith? For sure did. I just want to focus on one story of David. The time when he first broke onto the public scene. This is the most exciting story of David, I think, right? The Israelites were in a showdown with the Philistines. They're in the Valley of Elah, which is this, this valley in, in Israel. And the, the Philistines were on one mound mount or mount on, the, on one side, and Israel was on the other mount. And the idea was that the, the valley is the battleground, but they're up on the hills, and they're kind of like, like squaring each other out and evaluating each other. Now, the Philistines had this guy... Oh, man, I forgot his name. What's his name? What's his name again? What's his name? Again? Goliath. Yeah, he had this guy named Goliath who was over nine feet tall. That's what the Scripture says. He's six cubits in a span. That's pretty big. That's bigger than your dad drew. That's big. That's tall. He had this guy, champion of the Philistines fighter. He'd come out day after day after day onto the valley floor and say to the Israelites, he said this, choose for yourselves a man and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, then we'll become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants. I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that may fight together. That we may fight together. And that was taking place day after day after day for more than a month. In fact, for 40 days that took place. He'd come down and basically challenged. And nobody wants to fight Andre the Giant. We're not going to go against this guy. And Israel was... I don't know, plotting their move, but they're 40 days on the banks of the valley of Elah. And at one point, David's father sent David, who wasn't there, up to Elah to bring food to his brothers who were fighting. Actually, they weren't fighting. Actually, they were scared witnesses. They were looking at this guy trying to figure out how they're going to defeat Goliath and how they're going to defeat the, the Philistines. No, they're scared, they're just listening to this guy rage. And David heard this man's verbal abuse just once and his blood was stirred. He said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would taunt the armies of the living God? So he immediately went to Saul, who was the commander of the army at that time, and said, I will go and fight this Philistine. Now David was a boy. We don't know how old he was. Maybe 13, 14, 16, 18. We don't know how old, but he certainly wasn't a a strong man like me. I mean, he he was more of a boy, right? And... um, but David was full of, full of faith. But when David said, I'll fight, Saul said, no, 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 you're not able to go against the Philistine and fight, for you're but a youth. And he's been a warrior from his youth. It's a big difference. He's a youth. But David, full of faith, said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, He will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. That's faith right there. David. David said, God has been faithful in the past. I can, delete, I can defeat this guy. But it's not me who's doing it. Notice what he says. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, He will deliver me from the paw of this Philistine. The hand of this Philistine. So David went down the brook, chose five smooth stones. So he went right down there to the brook and tried to pull them out. And he... He pulled out five smooth stones. Now, from everything we know in Israel, sometimes you might look, kids, in your story, you got a little stone like that. It wasn't a stone like that. Like, it wasn't a big boulder either. Think baseball when you think about, right, Conrad? That's a good thing for you, right? To think baseball when he was uh, pulling this out. It, in fact, this, this rock came out of the brook of the valley at Elah. When Ivan and I were there in Israel... I forget fourteen years ago, twelve years ago, something like that. We were there at the Valley of Elah. And we said this this might be the rock. Might be. Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> Most definitely not. But it might. But it might be that it was it's close to what David had. So he had five of these in his in his pouch. And then he approached the Philistine. Goliath said some insulting words to David, and here's what David said. He said, you come to me with spear and a sword and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike down you and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of your army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth might know there's a God in Israel. And all this assembly might know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or spear for the battles of the Lord's, and He will give you into our hands. I love that. That's faith right there, right? Confidence. But it, it's not confidence in David. It is confidence in God to accomplish all these things. So picture this scene. Andre the Giant is is approaching Sr. All right, and Sr. has got this thing and he's he's whooping it around. I mean, we we saw we saw a guy in Israel take a sling and really throw this. And it was about a a rock about this size. And he goes like this. He goes whoo, and he threw it further than I could throw any baseball. That's for sure. Probably hit any baseball, I I think. And so picture Goliath is coming. David's kind of swinging this thing around like this, and they're they're kind of approaching. I'm guessing. 15 feet away, 10 feet away maybe, and David goes, knock! And it's no wonder that that Goliath was killed, fell down, when this thing lodged in his forehead from a close distance. And no wonder that he couldn't couldn't cure up, because they were coming close to one another. So he, he falls on the ground, David stands over the Philistine, takes his sword, draws out a sheet, cuts his head off, my guess is he held it up. Now, the Philistines, what happened to that ridge? That ridge was empty really fast. They took off. But Israel was victorious. David ascended the minds of Israel. He went out to reign then in Israel for 40 years, easily becoming the greatest king in Israel until Jesus came to be the greatest of kings. David is full of faith. I mean, after all, he was a man after God's own heart. Believing and trusting the Lord for everything. But I want you to notice in the fight against Goliath, how David fought. He fought in such a way as to make God look great. The point of the story isn't the great power of David. The point of the story is the great power of David's God. By faith, David was able to kill Goliath. In fact, even think about the statements that he said. He said, I'm going to strike you down so that all the earth might know there's a God in Israel. I'm going to strike you down that all this assembly might know that God doesn't deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's. David knew that in his defeating Goliath it was had a theological explanation for it. Is that God is great and that God is the one whose name goes out through all the earth. And because of what David did on that Valley of Elah that one day, some see David's about a thousand B C three thousand years ago, we still hear about it today. And the purpose of that is so we might hear that there's a God in Israel. Do you imitate the faith of David? Living, fighting your battles, drawing people to look at the greatness of your God or do people look at your battles and say, wow, look at how strong and smart and intelligent and rich you are. Let not the wise man boast his riches. Let not the mighty man boast his might. Let not the... Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the one who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. Let us so live by faith that people, when they see us and see the way they live, they say, wow, there's a Christ follower. Let us live by faith in such a way that our strength comes from Him. It's not us we preach, but Christ Jesus Lord. Let us be a light on a hill that, that people see, right? Let, let, let Your light shine before men so that people see that light. And what? They glorify God. They don't glorify You for what a great light You have. But that's the point of David who lived by faith. And, and that's just one instance of David. We could spend weeks on David. So maybe go through First Second Samuel. We will sometime. But by faith, we could go on like this. By faith, David did not touch Saul the anointed, but waited for God's perfect timing to be the anointed king of Israel. By faith, David waited for the Lord in the wilderness, trusting God's will for his life. By faith, David delivered those in Keilah who had been held captive by the Philistines. By faith, David cared for Abigail, who had been treated poorly by her husband. By faith, David overthrew the Amalekites who had overthrown Ziklag. By faith, David mourned for the death of Saul. By faith, David brought the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. By faith, David planned to build a temple for the Lord. By faith, David showed loving kindness to Mephibosheth. By faith, David was restored as king after Absalom took the throne by deceit. By faith, David was merciful to Shimei who had cursed him. That's just a sampling of what we can think about with David. And then you start pulling some things from the Psalms you learn. It's almost unlimited to see the ways that David lived by faith. But, we press on. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David. Now we come to Samuel. Do you know about Samuel? His story is told in the book of Samuel. Okay, good, good. Getting that far. He was the last of the judges. His mother's name was Hannah. And she was barren. Hannah felt the pain of her barrenness and she begged the Lord for a child. She pledged to give her child to the Lord if the Lord would just give her a child. And so when Samuel was weaned, she brought him to Jerusalem, gave him to Eli the priest to raise as a servant of the Lord in the temple. And the hand of God was clearly upon Samuel, even from the time he was a child. Maybe you remember the prophetic call of Samuel. Is that he was sleeping one night? The Lord called to him, Samuel. I think it was Eli's voice. He ran to Eli and said, Here I am. And Eli said, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. It happened a couple more times and then Eli discerned that it was the Lord and so he told Samuel, next time the voice says Samuel, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And he did. And the message that came to Samuel was a difficult one. It was condemnation to Eli and to his family. And Eli was like his surrogate father. So this is hard. The Lord said this. He said, I'm about to judge Eli's house forever for the iniquity which he knew because his sons brought a curse on themselves and he did not rebuke them. Remember, Eli's sons were wicked, corrupting the priestly office. Eli did nothing. So God says, Eli, you're going to be destroyed and your sons are destroyed. So the next morning, Samuel is confronted with a choice. Would he deliver this painful message to Eli, his surrogate father? Or would he soften the message? And upon Eli's pleading, Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And that really set the course and the trajectory for Samuel's life. By faith, he was a bold proclaimer of the truth. He didn't back down at all. He saw a short time later when Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died at the hands of the Philistines and at the Ark of the Covenant was taken into captivity by the Philistines. Eli heard about his sons had died, heard what happened to the Ark, and he fell back in his chair backwards. The gate broke his neck and he died. And Samuel saw the words of the Lord come true in his life. And I'm not sure exactly when or how. I think Samuel said, Boy, if God says something, I'm going to do it. I'm going to say it. I'm going to speak it. And the testimony of his life was that God let none of his words fail. None of them. And such boldness characterized his life. Like when Israel demanded a king like the rest of the nations. Samuel warned them and said, you don't want a king over you. Listen to what he's going to do. He's going to take your sons and place them for himself in his army. He's going to take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields. He'll take a tenth from your flocks and yourselves will become his servants. You will cry out in that day because of your king whom you've chosen for yourself. But the Lord will not answer you. Yeah, we want a king, but you know what? This is what the circumstances are going to be. And what did the people of Israel do? They refuse to listen to the Lord. God's ways are best. There are ways that might seem right to us. We'll reap what we sow. God's ways, let me be your king. They thought was best was that we should get a king. They're reaping what they're sowing. They follow their own ways. God is not going to answer them like wisdom in Proverbs chapter 1 who mocks in the days of calamity. So likewise, they should have listened to Paul Tripp, Ted Trip, Paul Tripp. Bullets to Samuel. Then, continue right on down this whole king thing. Totally against the king thing. When Samuel was to be crowned king of Israel, he spoke out to the assembled crowds there. I mean, he he was like the dignitary about to, you know, give official sanction for this coming king. This is like the pastor at a wedding ceremony. He said this. He reminded them of the history of rebellion. You've rebelled here, you've rebelled here, you've rebelled here, you rebelled here. Even you said, a king shall reign over us. Although the Lord your God was a king. I'm just rebuking them and saying, this is a bad thing. You want it, I'm doing it, but it's a bad thing. That was his message. And then he said, I will call the Lord that He may send thunder and rain. Then you will know... And see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord by asking yourselves a king. And so Samuel called the Lord. The Lord sent thunder and rain that day and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And that was the faith of Samuel. I mean, he believed God and was ready to speak to all who were disobedient to him and warned them of the danger. That was Samuel. He was a bold proclaimer of the truth. The writer of the Hebrews had said anything about Samuel, might have said something like this: "By faith, Samuel warned the people of Israel of the dangers of having a king." Then we've on, but that's that's, I think, what Samuel did. And here we see an application for us, right? We need to be bold in in our proclamation. God has called us to be upfront and honest with people, straightforward like Samuel was. God calls me bold, with the gospel. Hey, you're dead in your sins. And apart from Christ, you're lost and you'll face eternal destruction, but God has given you a way of escape. It's through Jesus who died on the cross and His death bore the wrath of God for those who believe. You just need to believe. He are made righteous. Sinners like you and me are made righteous in the blood of Jesus. You don't need to perish. Call upon the Lord and be saved. Trust in Jesus. We need to be bold with that message. As people are going astray, God has called us to be Samuel to imitate Samuel in those ways. Now, Samuel wasn't successful in turning people back to righteousness. They continued in the sinful ways. And so we're not responsible for turning people from their wickedness. We can't control their hearts, but we are responsible for warning them of the destruction that awaits. I need to call upon Jesus. That's what we need to do. Alright, my time is, is almost out here, but we'll, we'll make it. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. <laughs> I think he's just kind of scraping and saying the prophets. He could have said, and prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea and Joel and Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. He could have just zipped all those guys off and we could have spent a long time looking at each of those guys. Or there were other prophets who were, did great things. They could have said prophets like Elijah or like Elisha, or the lesser known prophets like Uriah and Shemaiah and Baruch, or even some of the women prophets of the Old Testament, like Miriam, Deborah, Abigail, or Holda. I mean, that's only a sampling of the Old Testament prophets. The Jews have gone and categorized all the Old Testament prophets, 55 of them they counted. Anybody who prophesied or was mentioned to call the prophet. 55 of them. That's a pretty... I'm going to preach about 55 people here, right? We can talk about the faith of all of them. I thought about identifying to you a prophet or two, but in the spirit of the, the text here, I'm just going to keep it generic. I'm just going to talk about the prophets. When you think about the prophets, what do you hear? You you're two New Testament statements about the prophets. First is that of Stephen, the martyr. When speaking to the Jews, he said this, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit, just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the Righteous One, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the laws ordained by angels, yet you did not keep it. He, Stephen, when he lumps the prophets, he lumps the prophets as a persecuted people. How did um, Jesus represent the prophets? Matthew twenty-three thirty-seven, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her? Often I wanted to gather you, your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. When Jesus talked about the prophets, he talked about how Israel killed the prophets; they didn't like them. That's the life of a prophet rejected, persecuted, killed. Prophets had a word for the Lord, but prophets weren't treated too nicely from the people because the people don't often like the word of the Lord. And the people you meet, in my experience, by the way, don't want to hear a word for the Lord. They want to follow their own ways rather than following after the ways of God. But God calls you to have such faith. It's through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Acts fourteen, twenty-two. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus even said, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword, right? Division there, as we are prophets and speak out boldly. If the writer of the Hebrews was to write a, a brief description of the prophets, I think it would have gone like this By faith, the prophets faithfully proclaimed God's truth and paid for it with their lives. And by this, I just want to bring us back to the application of the book of Hebrews. Remember, Hebrews was written to those who'd come into the church. Jewish people come into the church expressing an interest in Jesus. Many of them came to authentic, saving, enduring faith. But many of them were being pulled away. Right? The arguments of the Jewish people who, who said, oh, Where's your priest? Where are your rituals? Where are your sacrifices? What sort of faith do you have? And the faith is intense persecution from the Jews. And the message of Hebrews 11 says this, I have a faith like everyone else in the Old Testament. And then it explains why they're being persecuted by their own people. Because the prophets were persecuted in that way. It says, have a faith like the prophets and, and suffer at the hands of your own countrymen who think that you're making a big mistake in trusting Jesus. But know that no, trusting Christ is the best thing I can do. There may be friends who mock you. There may be family members that mock you. There may be people who think that you're crazy for following this Jesus. But but I call you to take on that suffering and take on that difficulty because the treasures of Christ are greater than all the treasures of Egypt, like Moses. It's the the joy of the man who sells everything he has and pursues the treasure out of his happiness. It's going to give you the greatest happiness the way to, to live and please God because this is just how the prophets did. They suffered greatly and so also we ought to believe in Christ and take the suffering willingly for us. They believed in God. We need to believe us well and God us well and look, look to Jesus. I mean, that's where Hebrews 11 is going to end eventually. Hebrews 12 verse 2 fix our eyes on Christ. Let's just focus our attention upon Him as we live and walk by faith. Well, let's pray one last time and I'll dismiss you. Father, so rich, even one verse today, just so rich we can't even get out of it and we've only scratched the surface because what more can be said of faith? Oh God, so much more. And I pray that You'd fill us here at Rock Valley Bible Church with faith. Faith that would boldly proclaim Your Word. Faith that would do what You have called us to do. Faith that would even... Believe you for things which may seem crazy to the world, reducing armies. Pray we have hearts like David. God, you look not on the outside as man sees, but you look on the inner person. You look at the heart. And may our hearts this morning be filled with faith and love to Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for His love, His sacrifice to bring us to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.